Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Intention podcast. I'm Tom Hammond, uh, co-founder of UserWise and your host for today. Uh, today, I'm actually joined by the one and only Daniel Pies, um, who comes to us from WorldSpark, the wonderful world of uh, Web3 blockchain games. So uh, very exciting stuff. Um, Daniel, uh, before we get into all sorts of fun stuff today, um, I always like to start with, you know, what's your journey? How'd you get into working in games? Yeah. Hey, Tom. Uh, glad you invited me on. This is exciting. And um, yeah, man, where did my journey start? I don't know when I was six years old or something. No, but um, honestly, I've always been huge into video games, earliest memories, getting next like, Super Nintendo, things like that um that's the best times for kids <laughs> i know i know right and uh uh you know kind of a few years later kind of i got probably graduated into pc gaming right uh, i am a pc gamer at heart and just fell in love with like strategy games mostly um but i never thought i could actually get into the gaming industry right like like most people who are kind of looking from the outside you essentially yeah. imagine this like yeah you, you need to learn how to code or you need to learn how to draw really, really well. And then you can get into game development. And um, it was actually probably like halfway through my career and I had gone through a number of boring office jobs. Um, nothing really got my attention. And by sheer luck, uh, I was laid off and I saw a position at Blizzard and it was pricing manager. And I kind of like look my girlfriend at the time, I'm like, there's no way they'll hire me, but why not? Right. This was January. Um, so obviously, you know, you, you, you create your resume, you tailor your resume, you, you, um, uh, say polish things a little bit more than what would actually happen. Right. Just to try to get through to the interview stage. So what is a pricing manager, by the way? Cause I don't actually know. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, I didn't know either when I started reading my phone, I had no idea this existed and it works in games. But essentially, once a game kind of goes live, especially a game that um, uh, is heavily reliant on like microtransactions, yeah. and has hundreds of SKUs at this point, you know, um, it becomes very difficult for uh, folks to manage pricing of SKUs, pricing structure of what their offerings are, as well as promotional um, activities, right? Uh, especially when you start adding another layer of like regions, right? Different regions react different yeah. ways. And so that's essentially what happened to Blizzard. Uh, they had launched, you know, Hearthstone um, and Heroes of the Storm was about to launch. And that added a massive amount of like microtransactions and like bundles and things like that. And the team essentially said, hey, we, we've lost control. It was the Latin America team. So they were managing four different currencies. And they're like, there's no way like any one of us actually has the, the ability to stay on top of this. So they hired someone just for that. And yeah, four or five months later, they called me and it worked out. And that's how I kind of kicked off my career uh, starting at Blizzard. That's great. Um, and then that led you to small stint at Activision and then uh, big time studios. And they're um, they're one of those like skills based type uh, plays, right? Or am I thinking of a different one? I yeah, thinking, I, th I might be thinking of Big Run, actually. Well, I would say like uh, big time is like it's action RPG. Right. So if anyone who's played Diablo and stuff, you, you know, it's very easy to get into. Um, yeah. But for folks playing at like the upper tiers of of, um, uh, of the game, it can be very skills driven. Gotcha. Yeah. And then 
you got sucked into this world of blockchain gaming. So tell me about World Sparks. How'd that happen? Yeah, actually, my first foray into blockchain gaming was with Big Time. Essentially, I, I, I felt bored at Activision. Uh, it was a very, very mature company, right? And I started mm-hmm. reading about this thing of, hey, you know, blockchain gaming and blockchain technology. And, you know, it, it's people are making a, a lot of noise about this. Uh, and it's actually very controversial. So it got me interested. And I jumped into Big Time. Um, and Big Time essentially was building an action RPG that uses blockchain technology, has crypto tokens, use, utilizes like NFTs for some of their things. Uh, and that's kind of one it felt like going to university compressed into like one semester. It's just, you dive like head first into the deep end and you realize just how much there is to learn and how um, little actually the whole industry as a whole knows. Um, and I think that's what interested me the most is like people, we had a few examples of what not to do, but how many examples of like best practices, right? Or what can you do? Um, so I literally started from scratch. Like what is blockchain technology? Why crypto tokens? Um, and that was a huge, huge learning curve for me, which was awesome. Uh, and then Chandler, our CEO was spark reached out, I think it was February this year. And he's like, dude, check out what I'm building. Look at the team I built. Are you interested in doing what you're doing, but here with us? I was like, oh yeah, let's do it. So yeah, I jumped, I jumped ship to world spark and they're, they're doing more of a, a MOBA slash brawler, um, called Eden brawl. It's, it's tons of fun. Actually, we, we have a prototype and prototypes are already pretty fun to play. Um, yeah, I've been doing that essentially. Yeah. So do you think that blockchain games are kind of like the future of the industry? Um, I think it'll be part of the future in my opinion. Um, now when we talk about like blockchain games, there are kind of two elements to it, right? One obviously is the technology, uh, to support the, the, a live game, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other piece is, elements that utilize blockchain technology to exist in the game. And that's when we know like, oh, okay, fungible tokens like crypto tokens or non-fungible tokens like NFTs. And there's there's a couple of ranges. There's like, there's like semi-fungible tokens as well, uh, phantom tokens. So there's all these different kind of uh, uh, variations on that type of technology. So I think the tech of blockchain, um, and I'm not an engineer, but the engineer I've spoken to uh, actually make it a lot easier to incorporate some pretty cool mechanics, which would traditionally require, you know, a, a dedicated engineering team uh, just to build and implement. Um, and then the 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 actual features like you know tokens or NFTs for some games they actually um, uh, uh, allow us to optimize was traditionally suboptimal. Think of account selling, um, games that allow transaction of in-game items. Uh, mm-hmm. It actually works a lot better using blockchain elements as opposed to kind of just pure server-based, uh, very confined ecosystem to, to, to facilitate trade. Very interesting. Um, you mentioned you see it as part of the future. Where do you think that it doesn't belong or it won't be a part of in the future? Um, I think when I look at blockchain games, it's very much like, or say like what blockchain games can bring. Uh, it can cater to certain player types and certain player motivations um, that exist in traditional games too, right? Um, so I think those games benefit, you know, your, your RPGs, uh, your multiplayer games, 
I think those are great. If you told me, hey, do you think The Last of Us 4 can benefit from blockchain? I'm like, well, I mean, it's story-driven single player. Not really, right? What are you going to do there? Um, so I think uh, that's why I think part of it. Like there are elements of um, different types of genres that would benefit from it. Uh, but I think the major thing is it does require uh, a very big reset on how we think about uh, player behavior and player interactions with one another and player motivations, which a lot of um, uh, studios would be very uncomfortable with, right? What do you mean by like rethinking? Like what, what's different about it? Yeah, so I think one thing is... <clears throat> Going to the easiest example, right? Folks that are actually jumping into blockchain games today, um, let's take your your retail gamer, right? It's your single player, uh, not your single player, sorry, your, your individual gamer, um, not belonging to like some play to earn guild or anything, just single individual gamer who likes to come in early, uh, buy a couple of NFTs and start playing a game and earning tokens. Um, they still have many motivations that traditional gamers have, right? Collection, power, destruction, all these different types of psychological motivators. They still have those, but they haven't added one, which is um, now not only do they value the game based on the experience it can extract from the game, they also value the game in terms of how we value almost like a portfolio, right? It's like my account is worth X amount. We've seen this before, like with World of Warcraft and folks who would sell accounts. Um, but now this kind of essentially formalizes that type of motivation. Um, and accommodating that can be really, really difficult for like existing games and, and like kind of old, more traditional game studios uh, because it does require letting go of a lot of controls we tend to have or we want to have over player choices and behavior. <laughs> Do you think that that is a function that will persist in blockchain? Like assuming that we can see more, you know, mainstream gamers, kind of everyone doing blockchain, or do you think that that is more of a feature of the small subset of people that engage in blockchain games today? Um, probably right now more of the latter than the former. But for me, I think if we fast forward, you know, two, three years in the future, um, players will be playing games without knowing that it has black blockchain technology behind it. And that's kind of optimal. That's kind of the tech side of blockchain, right? Yeah. And I think that's kind of a natural stepping stone uh, because we have games where players trade like CSGO and all mm -hmm. of a sudden they'll realize they're trading this stuff and say, yeah, I had no idea this is actually, you know, an NFT. For me, it's just a skin. Yeah, I think that's the optimal experience that we're working towards as as an industry. Well, not everyone, right? But many uh, <laughs> many new blockchain game studios are working towards um, uh, accomplishing. Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to talk about two pretty big topics, which I think you're pretty knowledgeable about, um, and that's monetization and game economy um, within blockchain games. So. Um, which one would you like to start with? I'll, I'll give you the choice. Oh man, this is a funny one because uh, they are so tightly um, wound together in blockchain gaming yeah. um, that splitting it, like you would in like a traditional game, right? Yeah, like a traditional game, you can totally split monetization and game economy. Um, you actually kind of miss out on some interesting opportunities. So I'm okay like tackling both at the same time okay, and how, okay. how they well, work together. Can you tell me like 
why they can be split and separate or in, you know, traditional games and why they have to be tied so tightly together in blockchain games? Yeah. So in traditional games, like I look at monetization in terms of um, where do we make deals with the player that they'll be happy with, right? It could be selling content. It could be selling progression, things like that, right? Uh, It could be selling uh, progression paths, like battle passes, right? Um, And the truth is that can have something to do with the economy if you wanted to, right? If you have a soft resource in the game, he's like, yeah, if you apply, you know, finish your battle pass, you get some of these points that you can spend on stuff. Um, but they don't have to be, right? Um, and that's where I see with traditional games, there there is tends to be a separation between the two. And normally there are completely different uh, people on different teams that deal with them, right? Monetization could be like a PM or someone f- purely focused on optimizing an existing monetization design, like a subscription, mm-hmm. for example, while the game economist is actually embedded with the developers on their team. And they're just kind of making sure that things don't break. Right. And that's how I always saw game economy and traditional gaming is like, don't break anything like New World, for example, with Amazon. Right. They broke it. Um, you don't want that. Uh, or when you have uh, highly inflated economies, you know, World of Warcraft became very highly inflated with all the gold. So that's where I see like the, the division between the two. In blockchain gaming, um, games can opt to and they have opted to essentially use uh, the demand for a token or an NFT to also monetize. Now that first generation of blockchain games, uh, it, it was done, uh, uh, it was not very player friendly, let's say, <laughs> to put it lightly, right? Uh, uh, I found it was very exploitative, but in the second generation of blockchain games, it's uh, more about giving players options. So players do want to opt to accumulate more tokens, to accumulate more NFTs for different purposes, for use or for sale, for collection, whatever. Um, they can, and we can monetize that demand, and they'll be happy to do so. Um, which I think is, you know, kind of this next step approach for, for the blockchain game industry. Interesting, interesting. Um, <clears throat> okay, um, I want to talk a little bit at like first generation blockchain games like Axie Infinity. Mm-hmm. Why did they go so wrong? Um, and and are there ways that you can actually avoid that from happening in the future? Yeah, I think I think it's probably two parts. One is the business strategy, and the other one is the economy. So on the business strategy front, um, they went extremely heavy for your players that are solely motivated by earning. And earning means you get your token in NFT and you sell it for a profit. Um, the problem there is when they have players with one single motivation and you no longer can fulfill that, they leave. Mm-hmm. Um, the second piece of the puzzle is the economy. So they had a highly, highly inflationary economy, which means um, there were way uh, more tokens that could be absorbed uh, by exchanges and you know, SLP. Uh, and at the same time, NFTs, right? So, I mean, there's some pretty good uh, articles and research papers done on, on kind of their rise and fall, but for me, it was very much, uh, they created a system that had a, um, a very big incentive to breed as many uh, uh, axes as you can, to extract as much SLP as you can. And then when things started coming down, they didn't have the levers in place or the designs in place to stabilize the economy. So now it's essentially, you have way too many axes in existence. So price of axes, you know, dropped dramatically. 
Um, at the same time, SLP, you know, have kind of crashed to the floor because there's just way too much SLP. And there's no way to actually balance that because they didn't have the levers in place. They're trying to do Axie land and make promises to try to stimulate, you know, burning of these, um, uh, of these digital assets. But the truth is it kind of needed a full on rework on, okay, how do tokens and NFTs flow into the system? How do they flow out? And um, they're kind of caught in this cut 22, which is if they do fix it, that player base with, that they attracted to, which was solely motivated by, you know, essentially profit, they're going to leave. Right. So you kind of set yourself up for a very difficult situation to climb out of without a complete reset. Hmm. Interesting. So, you know, I, coming from more of a traditional gaming background and stuff, it is very very hard to get a game economy right and even when you think you've perfectly modeled it sometimes you play the game and it's just like oh that one coin actually feels very not worth it um and you have to kind of redo it you know even though your spreadsheet was perfect but even as good as your spreadsheets can be sometimes you know players will find ways that you didn't expect to kind of exploit the system and suddenly your economy Mm -hmm. kind of inflate and you're, you know, constantly trying to battle it with, you know, the right amount of sinks and, and whatnot. Um, but oftentimes I even see it, you know, go beyond that, like World of Warcraft or, you know, I actually did a podcast about Hungry Shark World and how they reset their game economy. And in most of these games, wow, and that have managed to reset the economy. Now, most games can't, but it, those that do, usually they do it by like releasing a new expansion that just like gets rid of that old currency and make something new and they try to like balance that appropriately. I don't think you really can do that in a blockchain game. So like, how do you make sure are there tools or systems or a way to think about stuff? Because you really have to like get it right the first time. Right. Um, I would say you have to get the, 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 the holistic design, right. Uh, like I said, you don't want to be axing a situation where you need to fix things, but nothing has been built for you to fix it with. Um, for me, given that industry is, is still very new, the best examples come from real world, right? Uh, real world uh, analogies, like uh, how do we auction off um, forests for lumber? You know, essentially, how do we auction off quotas for fisheries, things like that? And you start seeing different ways uh, in the real world that governments and uh, organizations try to um, uh, establish the rules uh, in which an industry can perform uh, in, because not every industry, actually many, many industries do actually do not work very well with a perfectly competitive market. Um, yeah, actually end up exploitative behavior and monopolies and you know, essentially a complete degradation of any resources. So there are lots of real world examples to base off of. For blockchains, um, you're right. You can't just say, hey, by the way, this token, we're not going to use it in the game anymore. We're just going to launch another one. Um, <laughs> countries have done that before, right? When they launch new currencies and there's some great lessons learned there. For blockchain games, I would recommend, um, or at least my approach has been so far, is overbuild the, the systems you need, even if you might not need them in the future, right? So it's very much uh, three categories. One is like, your passive um, controls. So just automatic um, balancing mechanics that exist, right? If the price of one thing goes up, does the price of the other thing help balance it back down? Uh, Then you have things that are more kind of your weekly or monthly go-to like, okay, you know, things are a little bit too crazy here. So I will actually reduce the bonus percentage of tokens 
um, by 2%. You know, that's kind of like how central market, central banks work, right? It's just small levers that you want to pull, uh, but manually. And then the last one is kind of like break glass in case emergency. Like, I think you always need a couple of those or like, yeah, someone came in, they completely destroyed the market. Um, we need to, uh, and that's quote unquote reset with a new token, but we need to kind of get 30 to 60 days in order for these things to kind of settle down. Mm -hmm. I think when you kind of build the designs around those three, you reduce the risk to your overall system. And the other one is, it's, it's kind of like a bonus, but uh, it can vary by game is you have to ask yourself, what happens to my game experience if my economy implodes, right? Like can players still play and enjoy the experience or does it completely kill everything, right? Yeah. Uh, I think that's probably a question you got to ask early on. And then you kind of design your economy and your game accordingly. Um, like, I mean, it's kind of what we did at World Spark at Eden Brawl. Even if everything crashes and burns, uh, and you know NFTs are worth a cent or tokens are worth you know, a fraction of a cent, it doesn't matter. The game is still playable. It's still fun. You still have access to all the heroes. It's getting yeah. skins are a lot cheaper now, right? Is like we, that motivation is gone of profit, but all the other motivations are still intact. It's a very interesting way of thinking about it. Um, okay. So monetization, um, now, given that we build live ops tools, I think about live ops a lot. Um, and as games have evolved into this games as a service, you know, live ops often accounts for 50 to 60% of a game's revenue, sometimes even upwards of like 80%. Um, challenges that I often see with live ops, though, is... It's very easy to over discount offers or bundles or, you know, even get the balancing wrong of a live ops event where, you know, users can earn some sort of free currency and you expected them to play it twice and they played it like thousand times in over 15 hours. Um, and you can cause, you know, really big issues with your game economy because, well, Live ops events are balanced for like a day or a week, but your game is ideally balanced for years. And it's just very difficult to, to blend those two in there. So I'm curious, like, how do you foresee live ops and monetization kind of working together in the future of blockchain games? Like, is it going to be similar to what we've seen in free to play games, something different? Yeah. Um... I would say like the, the, the thinking I've had so far, is there are a lot of really good lessons learned from free-to-play games that uh, are still applicable for blockchain game, but um, not one-to-one. -one. Like you must account for the fact that you do have players with significantly deeper pockets who view their expenses as capital investment as opposed to, you know, kind of a sunk cost. And who may not be looking for a kind of a weekly return, but they want to see what they bought appreciate over time. Right. Um, and I'm talking about the retail folks, right? Uh, as if I spent a hundred bucks on an NFT and I'm playing, I'm an active, I want to come back every few months and see that, hey, actually someone's worth willing to buy it for 200 or 300. Um, you have to account for that. So as, you know, going to lies, live ops and monetization, whether it's a blockchain game or whether it's, you know, a traditional game is understanding uh, why players, first of all, why are players playing your game, right? What, what makes them think it's worth it? And there are a number of pillars and I, there's some pretty cool studies and different companies, how they take different approaches, but you know, what do players see as quality, right? Or is it the graphics? Is it the combination of cards? Is it uh, the PVP you know, system that you built? What is it that they really care about and, and see as, as contributing to quality? What do they not really care about? Um, 
So as you start moving to live ops and the game is live, you want to monetize. Those are the things you really want to piggyback off of, right? If players really, really like PVP, maybe it is time you introduce some type of PVP pass for them to progress specifically just solely through PVP. And like, hey, you know, this actually just amplifies um, the, the, the gratification I get from playing PVP because now I'm getting extra rewards. I think the other piece of the puzzle is um, when we're solely based on increasing engagement through uh, uh, in-game rewards, right? Be it soft currency or skins or whatever, um, that creates a really big content treadmill, and you're kind of being the, you're going to be limited by how fast your art team and your production team can actually churn these things out. So I think optimally can vary by lots, lots of different, you know, the type of game you have. You want something that um, is a good combination of both uh, an in-game uh, resource or uh, reward, or uh, also just an experience, right? It's like, maybe I do want to grind. I love grinding and maybe I don't need rewards. I actually want the achievements of it. You know, I got the tower level 10, you know? So I think it's just keeping that in mind that you don't always have to give people tons and tons of actual skins and, and things for them to feel gratification for what they bought. You also have to look at the experience that you're giving them. And some experiences are very easy to design to be replayable uh, multiple times. Interesting, interesting. Um, so do you think that we'll continue to have things like say battle passes in web three type games that have become, you know, super popular lately? Yeah, actually, uh, for, for WorldSpark, I designed it using a battle pass system. It's a little bit of a hybrid, but, um, the idea with the battle pass is it's very familiar to players. Uh, it normally has a very accessible price point, uh, for players and, um, it helps stimulate engagement, right? So even though traditionally battle passes need to be very generous, you can use that as a starting point and then go off in a different direction. So I think right now, uh, our, like our first generation of battle passes, um, like how Fortnite used to be, um, Call of Duty as well. Uh, it was very kind of uh, similar in the sense that you launch a season, Tons of content, people come in, lots of people buy the battle pass. Halfway through the season, they're done and they leave. And then folks coming in halfway through the season are like, I don't know if I have enough time to get all the rewards from the battle pass. So I don't think I'll buy it. So, you know, and obviously like very high engagement conversion early on, and then very low engagement conversion halfway through. Now you have games experimenting with different uh, uh, approaches like Halo did, uh, like Fortnite changed their battle pass system too. Uh, and I think there's a lot of exploration still to do with battle passes um, and, and kind of see where it goes from there. You know, I think hybrid, hybrid uh, monetization vehicles are probably going to be the, the go-to, um, you know, now and for the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, do you think that blockchain games could and should monetize through this idea, like, obviously to make things really rare and appreciate you have to like have like unique mints so like i'm only going to sell a hundred of this skin for i don't know ten thousand dollars or something like that um but once you have it like you have it and the only way to get it is from like buying from one of those players or something like that like do you think that that's something that's going to be used or are there elements of that maybe being unfair to players that can't afford to drop $10,000 on a, a unique skin or something like that. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, 
I, I've never really enjoyed the idea of uh, one, setting up an NFT that's required or two, setting up that this NFT is only uh, acquirable by buying. I, I prefer to kind of set up a system, for example, uh, I want to be able to earn like legendary tier NFTs in this game and say, okay, you know what? Anyone can, but it's based on an RNG system, right? It's kind of one way we control the flow of these into the system. Uh, it's time uh, uh, um, constrained, right? Like season, right? It's like, okay, it's only for three months. And two is this, the pass you need or the subscription you need in order to get it is very accessible. So now you've actually have, if you have 10,000 of this skin, you have 300,000 players playing to try to get to it. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, I kind of... Uh, I don't believe that every single NF type of NFT put in there needs to be issue constrained, right? Um, you can kind of say, hey, there is no cap on minting of you know these NFTs, but they're just really, really hard to get. And I lots of RPGs have done it. I, I remember one moment playing World of Warcraft and I saw someone flying by on a Phoenix mount that you get at the end of a raid. And the chance of that Phoenix mount dropping was like less than 1%. You know, and so you, you you created a scarcity through engagement and skill as opposed to a scarcity through issuance. And I think yeah. that's definitely a path that blockchain games need to explore more. Yeah. Almost like the uh, Diablo 2, you know, high runes where I like, you know, I don't think I've ever seen hardly any of those runes drop. And I've played, you know, thousands and thousands of hours. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think, and players love that because it's not just, yeah, I had the money to spend on this, but I had the skill and time to acquire it. And then other people were like, all right, respect, you know, like that's amazing. And if you do sell that and someone else buys it, people can look at the metadata, you know, it's like, hey, actually you weren't the one who actually earned this. You bought this from someone else. <laughs> so I think that's definitely a path that blockchain games need to explore a lot more uh, versus just kind of capping everything. Um, and, almost kind of like artificially inflate the price of, of NFTs. Yeah. What do you think about like land sales or pre-sales of skins and, and champions and, and whatever, like before the game is out? Yeah. Uh, I'm actually really on board, on board with that. Um, we actually have our pre-sale coming out this, uh, this month. <laughs> it's a, it's a small pre-sale. Um, but I think what's really cool is when you look at like game studios, traditionally, they either have to fund through some VC um, and the, the probability that a game becomes financially successful these days is actually very small. <laughs> you know, the game, traditional game industry is highly, highly competitive. So they need a VC who's willing to take a bet on them or they need a publisher that's willing to take a bet on them. And in exchange, that publisher is going to grab a majority of their revenue for themselves. Right. Um, so it kind of puts studios in the bind of like, you have to really like what you're building. Uh, but you won't see all the benefits of building that. I think now with the, this advent of pre-sales of like NFTs uh, or tokens, it allows studios to fund from the community, um, which I think is awesome. The only thing I always caution is uh, with this industry the way it is, there are so many projects of people saying they can make games who've never made a game before, uh, and they all end up, uh, oh, no, I don't want to say all, but a vast majority end up struggling to deliver any semblance of a game experience. Um, and that makes just, it makes it a very risky scenario for folks to come in and want to support a project. Um, I think people really need to do their homework. And uh, also I think 
the industry as a whole kind of needs some better rules around, hey, maybe these folks shouldn't be pre-selling, you know? Uh, is there any type of like validation uh, mechanic we can use so folks know which projects are actually at what stage in production, things like that? Uh, yeah. Because there have been a lot of rug pulls, unfortunately, and it is a great mechanic, but like many things in blockchain now, it's just being exploited uh, you know, to, to bad ends. Yeah. I guess the reason I ask is like, it is so darn hard to make a game that is legitimately fun enough for players that want to like keep coming back and playing over and over again that like, you know, what happens when you do the pre-sale and players have a certain expectation and the game comes out and it's just not that fun. Um, are you just kind of stuck with it or, you know, do you think maybe a better approach might be, um, I don't know, taking more of a standard soft launch approach of like you just soft launch it under a fake number, you know, name with no blockchain elements and just like test the retention and engagement and stuff to see like, does this seem like it has viable stuff? And then we add the blockchain and stuff to it. Yeah, no, you bring us something really important. Um, like with the traditional gaming industry being so competitive, we've all kind of learned how to, um, minimize our risk when we go and launch, right? It's like, okay, our alphas, how, how are our consumer surveys looking? What about our panels? Um, let's do a closed beta now and get, you know, higher groups of people to come in. Uh, what are retention rates look like? What are the engagement levels look like? How many hours a day people playing? How many sessions are they playing? And, yeah. and we need to, right? We essentially need to, uh, in order to improve our odds of uh, becoming financially successful when we launch the game. Uh, blockchain games, the, the blockchain industry as a whole uh, has had both a blessing and a curse in that there's been a whole ton of money coming into it, um, which means there's a lot of money chasing very few good projects. And that means a lot of money spills over into projects that do not have good fundamentals or they don't actually have the expertise to deliver their product that they that they say they will. Um, so I, like what I would recommend is any blockchain game studio, even if you've never made a game before, um, you can't rush it, right? It's like, it, it, there are many traditional games that got rushed and they just fell flat on their face. Um, so for blockchain games, especially if you've never made one before, you have to essentially experiment a ton and do lots of testing and try to figure out like, what is the core loop? Like, what is our differential experience for giving players like for us with Eden Brawl, like our main mode has a ball, right? So it is a mix of like a MOBA with ball scoring mechanics and like, okay, this is our focus. This is what differentiates the game. Um, and that's kind of where we go all in. You know, we add the characters and stuff, but if we were just to launch another MOBA, just like Dota or League uh, or Smite or something like that, um, what are the chances we do well, right? We have nothing differentiating our game. So definitely I suggest a lot of blockchain game students kind of stop and say, hey, build, get a prototype up and running and then begin to iterate on top of that. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the flow of money at a blockchain game, because at the end of the day, we're not just building games. We're hopefully building a game company that can continue to pay salaries of real people so that they can continue to make games and improve them. Um, so let's pretend for a second, like for Eden Brawl, um, that you price your battle pass at a hundred dollars and somebody comes in and they buy a battle pass for a hundred dollars. 
how does that ultimately like get split up into like company revenue for salaries? I assume some of it may go back to players or treasury or something like mm-hmm. that. But like, walk me through like where the money goes and kind of why it goes in those different places. Sure. So we have a bunch of pillars regarding the economy, um, but one of the decisions we made using those pillars was revenue, like cash flow, is for the studio. Token valuation is for the community and token holders, uh, not the studio. And that was a big, really big one because many blockchain game studios um, generate revenue off their own tokens directly. Meaning, as people sync tokens, they go to an exchange and dump their tokens. Right? Yep. That's terrible. That's not. That's not a good business model. Uh, instead, for us, so a player comes in, they'll get a battle pass for 15, uh, 15 to thirty dollars, depending on the tier of the battle pass. That revenue comes to us as fiat, doesn't come via token. It's you know, it's purchased with a credit card, debit card, etc. Um, through hard currency, and then we take that revenue and say, okay, this is for studio operations, expansions, as well as kind of putting it in our piggy bank because one of the break glass in case emergency type tools we have is the ability to use direct revenue in cash to buy back tokens and burn them if we have to, Mm -hmm. right? So it's kind of one of those emergency uh, levers we have to pull in case things get out of control. And that we can do that precisely because we we have a hybrid monetization models where we're we're making money off the sale of hard currency and that hard currency is used to craft and it's used to buy battle passes and used to buy off-chain stuff from us. And then the tokens appreciating value through demand for the token and use of the token within the game. But we're not saying like, oh, yes, token got up to five bucks. Let's go dump five million tokens on the market. That uh, if you look at our, our tokenomics, like our treasury is actually very small of tokens because that that's not how we are going to fund the operations of the studio. It's mm. very cool. How do most studios do it differently currently? I don't know that anyone's figured out like the right way, but like, you know, from what you've seen, how are others, you know, currently kind of handling it? Yeah. I mean, a lot of, a lot of games started copying Axie doing a two token model, right? So they have one cap token, sometimes it's a governance token and that's what they use as their treasury. And then they have like an uncapped token um, and that's what they pay out to people. And the whole idea is they want to generate lots and lots of demand for the cap token in order to raise its price. And then they sell it right uh, on the exchange. Um, I think the problem with that model one is you do not pay your employees and your taxes and your contractors and your outsourcing studios in tokens, right? You pay them in cash. So you immediately introduce another level of risk there. Uh, and, and then the other one is um, this idea of accruing value to a specific token is. Um, kind of like fundamentally flawed in the sense that you want to accrue value to something that you then want to bring the value down of by dumping, right? And the idea that then you have to share this value between the studio, the investors, token holders, and the community. In the end, it's normally the community who doesn't, you know, who ends up holding the bags, right? (laughs) So uh, you didn't really want to do that. Some games now are experimenting with like a one token model. I see some people talking about like a three token model. Uh, uh, DeFi Kingdoms has uh, two tokens, which are just for like different kind of like sections of the of the game, which is pretty interesting. Um, for us, we did one token, it's a utility token capped and hard currency, which is like your riot points, for example, right? Or your V-Bucks. So that's the, that's the mode we took and it really fits the design we put together. And the hard currency isn't, that's like fiat you you buy it with real money kind of a thing 
and yeah. you can earn it on the chain. Correct. Yeah, it's not a token. It's it's essentially like V bucks, Riot points, uh, Battle Net balance for Blizzard. Yeah. Interesting. How did you guys do uh, breakup of like like did you do a similar to League of like you can only buy skins with your hard currency or you know can you earn things with uh, the the blockchain tokens too? Yeah. So uh, how we split it up was rather than depend on us selling skins like League does, uh, skins are earned. So you actually buy a battle pass, which we call a ticket pass, um, mm. using hard currency and, you know, 10, 15, 35 bucks, depending what tier you get, you use your hard currency, buy that, and then you play to progress it. As you progress it, you do get some off-chain cosmetics. And then at the end, you get a soft resource called tickets. Um, tickets are like, I don't know, gold in World of Warcraft, for example, right? Uh, it's non-transferable, it's account bound. Um, it's, it's not on-chain, it's off-chain. And then you use those to go into reward pools, uh, which there's, that's where we have that layer of RNG. And the more tickets you have, the more, you know, mm -hmm. your higher chances of getting stuff in reward pools, which are NFTs and tokens, like different types of NFTs and stuff. So that way we've actually allowed full accessibility to everyone because there's also a free track. I mean, you only get one ticket, right? But you don't have to pay a penny and you can participate. Um, and it's accessible because it's cheap as well as we control the faucet because every month we distribute the rewards, meaning every month we decide how many NFTs and tokens actually flow into the system. Uh, and then people are just competing to increase their odds of actually getting an on-chain reward, but you're guaranteed all your off-chain stuff from doing your ticket pass, right? So it's very much a, a hybrid situation. Uh, and how we got there was essentially looking at what type of player do we want? What are their motivations? Like, okay, we have two types of players. Okay. What type of systems can we build that they're both going to be happy with the end result? And that's kind of what we, we designed around. Uh, and then the tokens were more about like an in-game resource, right? Like, I don't know, crafting materials that you have in RPGs. So tokens are used outside of a, an interesting staking mechanic we have. They're actually used to uh, gain uh, buffs, temporary buffs within the game, be it progression, reward chances, uh, crafting, kind of in those areas, but not power right we introduce power to a mobile you break the game yeah interesting so you guys are really like leaning into this rng kind of a thing where you know historically like if i was going to recommend how you'd maybe make more more money is i would probably say hey you should like in our system build a battle pass system and then segment your users to give them maybe two or three battle passes to choose based on like their favorite champion and most used mm -hmm. or most wind or something like that. And then you have some sweet skin for each of those, you know, different champions they like to use at the end. And then you pick the battle pass that you want of what you want to go towards earning um, to like encourage buying it. But it sounds like you kind of took the approach of like, it's just one battle pass at the end of it, you get these tokens that, you can RNG and maybe you'll get a skin of a champion that you never use, but maybe you'll get that, you know, really juicy skin that you've been, you know, vying for, for a long time, kind of a thing. Right. Right. So the battle pass, you do get um, off chain cosmetics, right? Like a typical game, like a typical battle pass. The yeah. only difference is all the on chain stuff is behind RNG filter. Right. So it is this idea of, I want to prove my odds as much as possible to get that really, really cool skin. That is an NFT. Um, but when I do buy a battle pass, I am guaranteed not just tickets, but off-chain stuff and skins for my hero as well. 
Gotcha. So you could still do that segmentation type stuff of down to here, but then it's the the on-chain stuff that's kind of variable that you might get something super awesome or not. Right, right. Yeah, the, the segmentation, like we talked about it. I think our only worry is like how complex do we get? And we, I know there's some mobile games that have like tons of different battle passes, right? And I think Halo just did it too, lots of different battle passes. Uh, right now, we just have the free track, the premium track, and what we call the ludicrous track. And the difference there really are the, the quality of the off-chain rewards the first time you finish it and the quantity of tickets you get. Um, so the idea is when you finish the battle pass, you can go and kind of reset it. And now you just get more tickets, right? Until the next uh, month when we introduce new cosmetics, off-chain cosmetics. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting approach. I've, I've not heard this before, but uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Yeah. It's, it's on paper, everything looks super interesting. I want to see how it plays out in real life. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I know we're getting close to time here, which is crazy. Um, but I'm really fascinated with this idea uh, with Web3 and it doesn't have to be Web3 or blockchain mm -hmm. games, but like this idea of like building games with a community. Um, I just, I love it so much because you're going to deeply understand like what they love about your games, the problems that they have with other games. And like, you're, you're going to have much more shots on goal, uh, much faster. And also if you finally do get a hit, they're probably much more invested into your game so that even if somebody clones it, maybe even makes it a little bit better, they're probably still going to stick to the game that like they've sunk so much time and effort into. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, like, what has your guys' approach been to community and community-based development and feedback and, and things like that? Yeah, so funny enough, our, our prototype was started being built like five, six years ago um, by our CEO Chandler, and he just used an army of contractors, essentially. And it was only early this year that he, he jumped into blockchain and raised money and started building a team uh, to kind of bring this up to AAA and, and get a lot of expertise in here. So for us, for the current community we're actually building, we had a little bit kind of like from before, but we only started building our community, um, has, I don't know if it's even been a month yet. And that was kind of on purpose. We wanted to make sure the product and the characters were in place before we kind of started pushing out and showcasing everything. And our approach is content. Uh, we noticed that in Web3 Gaming, there's a really big uh, deficit of enjoyable gameplay content <laughs> to, to consume. And so we're like, hey, we actually have some pretty good content. I mean, you can watch a League game or a Dota game, and even if you have no idea what's going on, it's exciting, right? Um, so we did that instead. So we have a sizzle of our, our current build that we're hoping to get polished enough to bring uh, external people into within the next month. Uh, as well as we've been bringing external people into our older prototype so they can play and have some fun and then create content out of that. And that's kind of been our approach. It's just kind of showing uh, this is where we're at in production. This is the lore of each character. This is, this is our first lineup of eight characters. Um, and right now, I think the biggest difference between like traditional gaming and where we are right now is we want to keep them fed with as much content as possible. While in traditional gaming, uh, you can go months before releasing any type of content um, for a number of reasons, many of which I've disagreed with in the past at Blizzard and Activision. But yeah. um, this idea of your community wants to hear from you consistently with things that matter, uh, as opposed to going quiet for you know three months and then dropping, you know, oh, hey, 
here's a 30 second teaser of our next cinematic. It's like, okay, how many cinematics can you make, right? It's like, uh, I think uh, cadence is super important to content and making sure that you um, disseminate that content into as many communities as you can. That's super cool. Um, well, I know we're just about out of time here. So I always like to ask, you know, one last question because we are on the Mastering Retention podcast, of course. Um, <laughs> and that is, you know, what's one tip or trick or lesson you've learned over the years to, you know, increase retention? Like, how do you keep your players coming back and playing day after day, week after week, and hopefully year after year, right? Yeah, I have a good story for this one. Um, years ago with World of Warcraft, we realized just how terrible retention rates were for new players. And it kind of went in line with what the game was doing, which was definitely building a lot of end game content. Uh, and Warcraft being the social game that it is, a lot of new players were coming in and just being solo, uh, you know, playing solo. Yeah. So obviously from a product perspective, you say, oh, what can we change on the product? But product design and development is very expensive and time consuming. So I took a step back with someone who worked at me at Blizzard and I'm like, all right, we need folks to make friends. Instead of saying, hey, bring your friends to World of Warcraft, we're essentially going to take the approach like we're going to give you friends. And we realized that we, we have been focused so long on acquiring into the game when the most important thing was actually acquiring into the ecosystem, which includes all the communities that support the game on social media and Discord and things like that. So we took a different approach and we started pushing our player base. We did a test. We started pushing all these new players into a Facebook group that we created. And in no time at all, about 30% of our, our test player base was in the Facebook group and we ran a test. And we saw six months later that the retention rate for the players that joined the Facebook group uh, had increased by 52%, while the retention rate for the control group of folks that were not in the Facebook group had decreased by like 48%. It was something insane. It was something insane. And so what we saw there was... Um, the social element obviously is key. People talk about it all the time. We were able to put numbers on it and we were able to do it for free. We literally took our creator Facebook group for free and put it on the launcher. Like, hey, don't forget to join the Facebook group. And then we ran our test. So that's that's the kind of one way you can kind of tackle retention there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing that like the social elements of, of different games, like once you get into them, like I think I probably played clash of clans for the last three you know the, well, I'm, I'm done now but when i played it like the the final three years like was pretty much just getting on because i had the obligation i you know wanted to hang out and talk to the guild members and stuff um so yeah it's, it's crazy um that's great um well daniel if folks do want to get in contact with you or they have any questions or anything like that like is there a good way for them to reach out to you uh, uh, directly to me, LinkedIn, uh, probably the best way to do it. And then for, for World Spark or things like more specifically to like Eden Brawl or, or Sparkadia, which is the IP, uh, we do have our Discord um, and we have our Twitter, which is at Sparkadia um, GG. And you can chat with us through there. We are very, very active on there, especially uh, recently. You can talk to us through there. Awesome. Well, thanks, Daniel. All right. Appreciate it, Tom. See you.